you just think we just, you know, whatever happens, we just shit another player. I, and everything's going to be perfect. All of our fans think that. You all think that. That's what you write about. You don't want to be here. There's a specific reason. Not really, you know, I think we did a poor job recruiting. If guys are coming in and immediately walking out the door because it was something different than what they thought it would be. And we lied to them during recruiting or we, we sold them on a dream that wasn't true. Yeah, you know, right now uh, we have the atmosphere of a, of a JC softball game. You know, I mean, that's what we are, a JC softball team. As long as, you know... Uh, it's 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 not whether you win or lose. It's like who, the, the the team that wins is the one that has the most fun. You know that crap like that. You know all this stuff that's contaminated America, where they give every kid a trophy and they don't keep scoring little league anymore. Is we want to be a big, fast, dominating, aggressive, relentless football team that nobody in the SEC wants to play. Now that's also a second in the West, baby. Yes, sir. <laughs> Winning the SEC probably is harder than winning the national championship. Do you know that? Well, how about the fucking dogs? Welcome in to the latest episode of That SEC Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bratton. I go by SEC Mike on Twitter, and I'm joined as always by my cousin Shane, who goes by Big Orange Vols on Twitter. What are you up to, you big Tennessee homer? <laughs> hey, buddy, what's going on? Hey, not much. Just got off the phone here with our guest, Clark Brooks, a.k.a. SEC Stat Cat. Mm. Really some outstanding stuff from one of my favorite Twitter accounts. Really great SEC website. Got it. I can't recommend it enough for all the SEC listeners out there, so I'm excited about that, but... Before we get to that, Shay, the last thing we talked about on our previous show, the speculation Alabama switching out week one opponent USC for TCU, and following all that speculation, USC AD Mike Bond, I think is how you say his name, he's uh, issued a statement here. I enjoy regular conversations with Greg Byrne, who's of course the uh, Alabama AD, We have every intention of playing our game against Alabama. I'd like to remind all our fans that this is an uncertain time and there will be much disinformation. He's pulling up fake news there. We continue to explore every model for the 2020 football season. We will certainly communicate relevant updates when we have them. So that's the end of his statement there. But again, while he says, you know, we're planning to play Alabama, he follows that up immediately with, this is an uncertain time, and we continue to explore every model for the season. So, you know, I think this is kind of what he had to say. The game plan is still to play Alabama week one, but hell, if the state of California or the Pac-12 or, you know, if they can't even get these kids to practice in Los Angeles, that they are not going to be showing up week one. Yeah, man. It's a, it's interesting because this is the – I saw a response, you know, USC's a, a private school, and – you know, you talk about a lot of money in the NFL. There's a lot of money in USC too. It makes me wonder if if there's a chance that they maybe relocate. Is that an option? You know what I'm saying? I don't know what the what the rules are with the school. I don't know if they can still do online classes and you know, so they keep up the enrollment or or how this is gonna play out. But it looks like USC still wants this game to go, man. Yeah, imagine USC, because you noted they're a private institution. What if they're the only uh, Pac-12 team to go? That that's that's a surefire way to 
guarantee the conference title right there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But I, I mean, there's other there's other teams I think are going to step up, but uh, it's you know it's just a weird situation. And and I I thought it was I thought the door was shut, but USC said not so fast, my friend. We're gonna we want Bama, you know. So I don't know if if that's going to be the case, you know, moving forward. But we're just going to play it by ear, but. Man, I just, I just, I don't know. It, it almost feels like dominoes, you know? Like, it feels like a few go down, then all of a sudden there could be others. I I think if USC can fight this and somehow get to play, I think we're going to be all right, man. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of people worried about all this, but still, there's so much time. Everything seems to be trending in the right direction mm-hmm. outside of some, some maybe governor's you know, in, in certain states, you know what I mean? But everywhere else seems to be trending in the right direction. And as long as things continue to do that, I think uh, everything's going to just kind of play out like, like it was supposed to, you know what? Absolutely. I wonder how many coaches are in California right now. You know, Nick Saban's out there and he hates California, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> He's over. He tried, where's Foreman live? Does he live? He don't live in California, does he? Yeah, number one prospect in the nation, Corey Foreman. I mean, he may be, uh, him and his family may be moving if there's no <laughs> high school football. You know, I mean, I'm sure IMG Academy's probably got him on the line. That's right. You want to play your senior season, come on down to IMG. Nope, no COVID-19 on Nick Saban's <laughs> lake, buddy. You can stay in the guest house. <laughs> All right, last thing here I wanted to get to before we jump to our interview. We got a credit, uh, this is a podcast listener here. TGH3316, big Kentucky fan. He's found uh, some lines here. He's got to give him credit for these from BetMGM. Looks like he got it on his uh, phone there, but really interesting because, hell, I don't want people to think this is turning into a damn Kentucky podcast or anything, but you know we had the Kentucky guests on Adam Luckett last episode. I hope everyone appreciated that, but mm-hmm. you know, a lot of hype around the Wildcats for people that actually know what they're talking about, but BetMGM has got Kentucky as big underdogs in the two games we talked about on the last episode at Florida and at Auburn. Kentucky underdog 15 and a half in Gainesville. And then this was the bigger stunner to me, 17 and a half at Auburn. And then I think uh, I can't tell which one Kentucky fans are more upset about, but it's probably this one at Louisville. Four and a half point underdog. I mean, my God, Kentucky has dominated Louisville here in recent seasons. But the one that's really got my attention is that Auburn game because I got Kentucky winning that one outright. You know, and again, you know, it's always important to note the betting line. It's not, that doesn't mean that's the predicted score of the game or anything, but that's where the money's coming in from Auburn. That's, uh, that's where they're laying it right now because the casual fan, they see Auburn, they see Kentucky, they see it's on the plains. They're throwing money at Auburn. I encourage all our listeners, if you want to make a safe bet, bet Kentucky and that 17 and a half because, hell, even if they lose by two touchdowns, you're still going to cover. So what are your thoughts on those three lines? Well, I love to gamble, Mike, you know. <laughs> and I guess I'm, I'm not calling it my $100 lock of the week. I ain't putting that curse on nobody just yet. But that 17 and a half on Auburn, man, I mean – even if they lose by 17 points, you still win. So uh, that's the one I've got circled. And obviously Louisville, I think that's a joke. I think uh, Kentucky has them figured out. Louisville, I 
I don't care where they put that game. You know what I'm saying? So those those two, the Florida one, tricky, man. Early in the season, it could go either way. It seems like Kentucky teams are typically more prepared at the start of the season. But, you know, again, we don't even know when the season's going to start. So is that going to be hindered? So I, I'm thinking this Kentucky-Auburn, that's the one I've got circled, then Louisville, then Florida. Yeah, and looking at it this way, Kentucky, they weren't a great team on defense last year. Had a totally reworked secondary, but this year they got more depth across the board. They got the incoming transfer, Kelvin Joseph, eligible immediately. You know, that secondary looks to be pretty solid. The most points Kentucky gave up in an SEC game last year, 29 points to Florida, they only gave up 21 to Georgia. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking 17 and a half, and we all know Auburn struggles on offense here last but, season. New offensive was more... line. But the point being is, how, how much is Auburn going to score on Kentucky? I mean, yeah. I don't think they're going to score 30 or more points on Kentucky's defense. So, hell, all you need for Kentucky is about 10 points to cover, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, it's still going to be a very, I think it's still going to be a very conservative offense, which, like you say, I think it's going to keep the point scores down, which you know they were able to just, I mean, they chewed the chains up last year, and I don't, I don't know if it's going to be that run oriented. I don't think it can be, you know, with Lynn gone, but um, I don't know. It's, it, I'm with you. The, I, I just think it's seventeen and a half. It's just a big number. To, to to do right now, especially with what Kentucky has coming back, you know, not and not saying anything bad against Auburn, you know, I think Auburn's going to be uh, a well-improved ball club as well, but their defense ain't going to be as tight, you know what I'm saying? So who knows? It could get in some sort of a shootout there. So I'm, I'm just I'm just not willing to to put any money on Auburn. This I mean, you're talking three over three scores. Nah, uh, give me Kentucky on that one. That's because you're a smart man. <laughs> All right, let's uh, jump to our interview here with Clark Brooks, one of my favorite Twitter follows for everything SEC related. This guy goes deeper than uh, most websites and most you know analytics when you're talking stats across the SEC. Can't recommend this guy enough. Let's kick it over to SEC StatCat. We're pleased now to be joined by Clark Brooks, also known as SEC StatCat. You can find him on Twitter at SEC underscore StatCat. He's also got the Facebook page, same thing, SEC underscore StatCat. And he's got SECStatCat.com, a really outstanding website. This is an account that uh, I found last season, and it's one of my go-tos now for SEC information. So thanks so much for joining us. I really do appreciate it. Mike, thank you so much for having me this afternoon. Absolutely. Well, for you know the listeners out there, Obviously, they know if they're listening to this show what a nut I am about SEC football. Can you give us some background information on you know why you started SEC StatCat and uh, why you take the time to you know go into all these SEC stats? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of a convoluted answer, but I'll try and cut right to it. Essentially, I'm a failed journalist. Um, I spent 10 years in uh, a top 65 market trying to get smart football content on the airwaves, but it just, I kept getting resistance each step of the way. And because of how consumption trends have started to change, you know, less and less people are actually flocking to watch nonlinear television unless it's a live sporting event. 
So it really didn't seem to tie my horse to a dying trend. So I ventured out and I wanted to give smart SEC football content. I started two years ago. This last fall was basically the first time we really wanted to drive traffic towards the site, being a little bit more public, being a little bit more vocal. But, you know, I wanted a one-stop shop for advanced analytics for the casual fan to become a little bit more educated on their team, on their players, and maybe if you are inclined to place a little bit of money for entertainment purposes only or what have you, you have a little bit more data in your back pocket to make you more money in the long term. But it's obviously it's a lot more than just advanced analytics. It's looking at concepts, you know, what actual plays these teams are running within the SEC and which ones have a better um, uh, correlation to winning and losing. So uh, this was uh, obviously pretty convoluted idea from the get-go, but I felt this was the time with, you know, uh, gambling becoming one of the better engagement opportunities inside the game. And of course, it just always means more within the SEC. You know, I like that you mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, even on your website, yes, there's there's a lot of deep diving analytical stuff, but there's also, you know, just video clips and explanations for basic football terminology, basic concepts, because, hell, if, if you don't have a coaching background, a lot of this stuff is going to be foreign to the audience anyway, and there's no need to talk down any, anyone. You just kind of present it as is and in a really fun and informative way. So I can't recommend secstatcat.com enough to just anybody really wants to get a little bit more knowledge on not just sec football but football in in general so you do a really good job with that but i wanted to ask you before we get into this sec quarterback talk uh how much time do you and research do you put in for these articles because my goodness it's like this is this is not just a, a simple copy and paste job this is a deep dive analytical stuff that you're doing on your website Right. You know, I think the, the SEC fan deserves that. I always kind of roll my eyes. I mean, you see a lot of people, I won't name names, but they do just, you know, they copy and paste generic traditional stats and they say, well, he threw for 3,000 yards, so he must be good. That doesn't tell the whole story. So basically, I chart every single snap, where the ball is going, what, you know, what concept it is, who's doing this, where on the field, the average depth of target, you know, everything you can possibly think of, I'm tracking. And it basically takes about three hours on average per side of the ball. So maybe about five and a half to six hours per game if I have two SEC teams playing each other. So on any given week, I always start charting the first game at noon live. So I'm literally breaking out the DVR and I'm stop stopping the entire way through. And on any given week, I'm usually working until Wednesday to Thursday nonstop, just tracking each and every game to make sure we have um, proper data heading into the following week. So it definitely is time consuming, but it's definitely a labor of love. Yeah. And you can see it on the page again, I cannot recommend it enough, but let's get to the meat of the topic. Why I really wanted to have you on here because everybody loves to talk quarterbacks. Oh yes, they do. Even the teams that, uh, you know, like I'm a Tennessee graduate, but my buddies also want to talk. Why in the hell are you so good high on Kyle Trask? You know, Fans even have opinions of the other team's quarterbacks as well. And I want to start right there with, you know, the two of the better quarterbacks in the SEC coming into the 2020 season. Kellen Mond, you're seeing a lot of people jump on his hype train. I personally like Kyle Trask. And on your website there, you've got a breakdown of Kellen Mond versus Kyle Trask. 
Can you kind of give us um, your thoughts on those two and, and which quarterback you think is the best heading into the season? Gosh, I've gone back and forth on Trask being the best, and I'll tell you why. Um, he's basically top five across the board in anything you would want. He's very sound against pressure. He was top four in success rate, so that's a statistic that we like to use around NCC StatCat. So it puts all yards-to-gain situations in a box. So everyone knows third downs, right? It's third and five. We've got to convert, or the punt team is coming on the field. If we don't get the first down, obviously it's a fail. If we move uh, the chains, obviously it was successful. Well, this does the same thing for first and second down and just puts you have to gain X amount of yards based on the parameter. And so first down, you have to gain 50% or more, second down, 70% or more, 100% for third and fourth down. Well, Kyle Trask, when he was pressured, he was top four in success rate, and he was second in depth-adjusted accuracy. So even though he's a little bit of cement-footed, even though he's not necessarily the most mobile guy, he showed poise and composure beyond his years, especially, you know, very famous. He had not started the game since ninth grade or whatever, and yet he comes into SEC football, and he is as even Steven as they come in terms of that aspect. Now, what Mond does not have that Trask did is abundance of speed at the wide receiver position, and this absolutely affected Mond's ability to create explosive passes. Now, not, not that Trask really was a vertically oriented passer. You know, he was, I think, first or second in screen rate. So he basically doubled the SEC average in screens, like 14% of his attempts were off screens. That's insane. 28.8% of his passes were off play action. So he definitely used a lot of the people around him to help facilitate things. And if you look at Mond, completely opposite uh, on the end of the spectrum. Very little RPOs, very little screens, mostly up and down drop back passing. And because he didn't really have a lot of speed at his receiver position, there was very little threat after the catch. And that's why he ended up being one of the more uh, ex- inexplosive passers in the conference. But despite that, he was fourth in deep accuracy percentage. So if the ball is accurate, that's one thing. If it's caught, it's another thing. I'm talking a third of his passes beyond 20 yards downfield were on the money. And that's one of the top four best in the conference. So he just does not have the benefit of the doubt. And Another thing that's in Mon's corner, he was better from clean pockets. So there are two two uh, ways of thought. I like to go about clean pockets represent a quarterback's floor. Obviously, you want a high floor, right? Like the more bad you're going to be from clean pockets is a more detriment to your game. Because after all, if you can't produce when everything is perfect for you, well, how am I going to expect you to rise above the uh, situation when everything breaks down or you have someone barreling towards you and your vision is, uh, you know, obstructed or if your guy slips, if you can't do it when everything's perfect, I'm not going to expect you to do that. And since unpressured dropbacks are more common than pressure dropbacks, it's a good reason to leave the floor. So uh, despite being very good against pressure, Trask was a lesser passer on clean dropbacks. You know, um, pro football focus, they like to evaluate it by clean drop back non-play action passes because essentially you're just erasing all these other types of elements that can help hide a quarterback, whether it be play action, run pass options, or pressure. It's just on any given down, if I wanted to have a drop back passing play, how good are you? Well, it looks like Mr. Trask was the definition of average in that regard, while Kellen Mond was one of the best in the conference in that 
respect. And, you know, like, again, Trask had a lot more better weapons, and especially speed, around him. But I really do like Mond coming in. But at this point in time, I have to give it to Trask just because he's a little bit more consistent and he has a better play call around him. I think as much as I respect Jimbo Fisher, it was basically the same thing throughout the entire season. There was a lot of intermediate concepts. He really didn't want to um, generate explosive passes beyond 20 yards downfield. He really was adverse to putting Anaya Smith in there. He was a freshman for them. He really came on as a, as a slot. And as opposed to keeping that speed on the field, he moved him to the backfield when, in actuality, they were running the ball just fine, but they really had no one to help take pressure off their outside receivers and really be you know, an electric receiver in the middle of the field. It was just corner routes, out routes comeback very static type of pass patterns that really didn't like i said um make running after the catch simplified it was very nickel and diming modest gains here and there while it's trash you know he could just be a distributor and you know ben jefferson grimes Hammond, they could take a slant or an in route the distance and we saw that plenty of times but you know trash is more consistent other than just having to rely a little bit more on screens a lot more on play action, and of course, the biggest bugaboo of his is interceptable passes. Now, by a rate basis, he's fine. So, like on any given snap, he's basically SEC average throwing an interception. But if we're talking volume, and most people do, 27. That was the most in the conference last year. And, of course, if he didn't start all 12 games, that is a big glaring red flag moving forward, even though he is rather consistent down to down. So based on the fact that I know Florida is still going to have plenty of weapons, but maybe not as many as they had last year. And the fact that Kellen Mond should have a little bit more experience around him. I know they started a true freshman on the offensive line. So you figure maybe he'll get a little bit more clean pockets next season. Mm -hmm. Uh, While, while I think Trask is the better quarterback right now, I don't think it would be that far fetched to say Mond could surpass him next season what, what's your thoughts on that absolutely not because like you said like last year mond was one of the more pressured quarterbacks in the sec and since he was under pressure more often than not that really did drag down his overall numbers because like i said when everything was clean and perfect he was one of the best guys around so if that can be addressed from the onset he can absolutely make the leap all right now i wanted to ask you this is another article you did bo Nix versus mac jones it's got to be one of the Hottest topics there in the state of Alabama this entire offseason. What's your thoughts on these two? Which teams got to feel more confident with their guy heading into the 2020 season? You know, this is another one I went back and forth on. Before, like, I really started to do a deep dive, I was adamant that Mac Jones was going to be QB1 entering this season because he was so accurate as an intermediate passer. Like, even before doing the deep dives, I knew – only Joe Burrow was, had a, a preferable success rate and accuracy percentage on throws 10-plus yards downfield within the SEC than Mac Jones last season. I mean, that means something. That's special. You want your passer to be able to come in there and make throws downfield. But the problem with Mac is he's very coddled. Um, he was bottom five in average depth of target. He used um, play action on over a third of his dropbacks. He used the fourth most run pass – he had the fourth highest run pass option rate and – he was only pressured on 17% of his passes, which was 
the best clip in the SEC. So he's really not tested. He really wasn't asked to do a whole lot. Oh, and in case you forgot, he had four dynamic options to get the damn ball to and a bulldozer of a back in the backfield. Bo Nix, he basically had Seth Williams and no one else. That being said, um, as a true freshman, I don't know if this was absolutely by design or if this was just Nix's preference, but for whatever reason, Auburn, they really wanted to target outside the numbers. And that's, you know, basically there are less defenders on any given snap outside the numbers than there are inside the numbers. Thank you, Mr. Linebackers and safeties. So they wanted to play a little bit more isolation ball on the outside. They directed the third most passes outside the numbers, but the problem was Bo Nix had the second worst success rate. Only Riley Neal was worse throwing outside the numbers than Bo Nix, and yet they targeted that area the most often. Now, in terms of run pass options, I say Jones is one of the more coddled passers. Well, no one had a higher RPO rate than Bo Nix. Almost a fourth of his attempts were off an RPO. That's insane, 24.1%, absolutely high. But again, it, like, like I said, pro football focus, let's strip away all that superfluous stuff off the side and let's see how good these guys are from clean drop back passing situations. Well, Bo Nix, he was the only youngster, I mean, like soon to be sophomore from that article, who is top nine from clean drop back situations and success rate, depth adjusted accuracy percentage, first down touchdown rate, explosive pass rate, and interception, interceptable pass rate. So he's curving passes. And speaking on that, no SEC passer was better in putting balls away from the defenders than freshman Bo Nix. That's right. On drop, on clean drop back passes, only three and a half percent of his passes were altered by defenders. That's insane. So he, either his guy was going to catch it, or no one, no one was going to catch it. And that's very um, good moving forward for Mr. Nix. But again, when only you have Seth Williams and you're really trying to play isolation ball. It's not the most efficient nor um, effective way to play. You know, he does have a pretty good deep ball. He is pretty good at driving the ball downfield on the opposite hash to uh, other side of the field. Preferable arm strength, really good athleticism. But in terms of actual production, he leaves a lot to be desired. And if they're basically bringing back Schwartz and Williams and Stove as their main pass catchers, I'm not sure how much of a leap he can take, even with Chad Morris being there. And I say this because Chad Morris, being from the spread uh, run-and-shoot type of style, he really likes to go empty protection a whole lot. So basically just the five linemen blocking and maximizing your passing outlet. Um, Bo Nix was not good against pressure last season. And he, looked, and he, he, showed his, he showed his age when he was flustered, no doubt about it. So... I'm not sure how he's going to respond to that style of play, assuming Chad Morris is going to have that same scheme he had at his SMU and Arkansas days in, uh, in Auburn there. But because you have Jalen Waddle, because you have Devontae Smith, legitimately two of the best pass catchers, some of the most efficient pass catchers in the SEC last season, um, in terms of yards per target, they were one and three respectively. And I think both were also top five in terms of catching success rate. So having that in his be- in Jones's back pocket is absolutely going to help him moving forward. And because of this atypical off offseason, I wanted to see what Jones was going to be like in the spring game. You know, was he still going to be relying on RPOs? Was he still going to have to use a lot of, you know, eye candy, jet, jet and orbit motion, pre-snap motions to alter 
defenses pre-snap so someone can be open or, you know, present themselves a little bit more obviously to him because he didn't have a whole lot of game action. And, and the game action he did have was against Arkansas, Western Carolina, or garbage time opponents before the Iron Bowl and uh, the bowl game. So not a whole lot of true tested ability for Mr. Jones. Nick's, of course, week one last year showed he had a lot of Mott and Grixie leaving that um, two-minute game-winning drive against Oregon. But at this point in time, just because he is a better, more accurate downfield thrower in terms of what I consider uh, depth-adjusted accuracy, I'm going to have to give it to Mac Jones right now, even though Nick's has a lot of traits that you really like. You know, like I said, strong arm, athleticism. He doesn't necessarily look to bail, but he does. I mean, that's going to come with any young quarterback playing behind a not-so-great offensive line. Um, but I think his game is definitely going to take a little bit of a leap, but because of this atypical offseason and he's going to have a new play caller, I'm still going to give the edge to Mac Jones entering 2020. Well, you do a really good job of painting the complete picture of everything you got to look at because, you know, I get a kick out of these Alabama fans that they just straight look at the stats. And I've even seen some people extrapolate that to say, well, if Mac Jones would have played the whole season, he would have had 40 something touchdowns. But, (laughs) you know, it's not like he would have been playing Western Carolina at Arkansas six times like it may have been. So I think it is a lot closer than some people make it out to be. It's interesting that you got Mac Jones a little bit higher, but. I can't really argue with that. It's, yeah, I mean, yeah, at this point, it really is. It's like, what skill, what skill set do you like more? Do you like a guy who has an arm strength that can potentially drive it downfield and outside the numbers? Or do you like a precision passer inside the hashes? And Jones has proven to be the latter and Nick's the former. But I'll say this before moving forward, you know, dropping, uh, you know, circling back to that clean drop back passing um, criteria. Well, guess what? Bo Nix had a higher success rate in those situations than Mac Jones last season. And for whatever reason, Mac Jones was just an overly overly less passer from those situations than when he was pressured. And since pressured attempts are a lot more volatile than clean dropbacks, there's a good chance that Jones could see some type of regression in 2020. All right, so we all love when we get a new weapon, new toy to play with, if you will, and transfer quarterbacks i mean my goodness that's every fan's offseason hope if we don't got a good offense let's just get someone new in here they we always get enamored with them but you know based on what i've seen from jamie newman and kj costello i think there is legitimate reason to be excited for georgia and mississippi state fans what can you tell us about these two new sec quarterbacks well i don't know how much wake forest film you watched but it's not pretty so (laughs) Generally, their run game, it drove me crazy. I never had really seen this at this type of level, but they, it's something called the extended mesh read. And <sighs> describing it to you, it's essentially blocked like a draw play, and the quarterback has the option to hand it off to the running back. And if he chooses to keep it, he then follows the running back through the hole. So it's kind of like draw slash keeper counter action. And legitimately, the guard, the playside guard and center drop step. They don't look to get downfield blocking. They, they're, they're trying to seal people at the point of attack, get the linebackers to get a little muddle huddle of themselves kind of like two to three yards behind the line of scrimmage. And then once they're like a step or so out of position, boom, we're going to decide either to hand it off or go through the hole. So that in itself, there's a lot of variability. And you can expect there's not a whole lot of explosion from that. It's definitely like more 
methodical three yards through a cloud of dust, especially if you don't have a, a line to be consistently great at that. And if we don't know anything about the ACC, they really were not a defensive stalwart of a conference this past season. So in terms of passing the ball, very vertical, very vertical. Um, Brian Maurer, your boy, big orange nation, he had the highest average depth of target in the SEC with guys of at least 50 attempts within SEC play at 13 and a half yards. Well, that's right at what Jamie Newman did in his uh, five-game sample against his hardest opponents that I charted at. Very vertical. So this was a lot of switch action with curls, 10 to 15 yards downfield, wheel post, wheel uh, dig combos, all verts, slot fades, very downfield oriented. And as you can probably guess me describing that, that's probably going to give a low rate of return in terms of success. So only about a third of his passing attempts during the, that five-game sample that I charted were successful, and that was what was on par with what Ben Hicks of Arkansas did this past season, which was fourth worst in the conference. So that's not great. And in terms of accuracy, he was right on par with what Riley Neal did. And if you know what anything about Riley Neal and at Vanderbilt, it was definitely not an explosive or efficient passing game in Nashville this past season. So very volatile. Um, again, it, like the, the other side of the coin is, okay, well, at least he's giving us explosive gains, right? We're getting 20 yards, 30 yards every once in a while. Yes and no. He would have had a clip that would have been inside the SEC's top uh, 10, but it still would have been below average at 12.7%. So even though he is throwing downfield quite a bit, he wasn't complete, completing them at a clip that you would like. Plus, his best games came with Sage Surratt healthy. He's a dynamic X receiver for them. You know, very obviously vertical, vertical receiving threat. But once he was lost in the middle of the part of the season, and another person was hot as well, and I'm blanking on his name, but um, once those two guys went down, there was a, a massive drop-off in Newman's play. So while it's not necessarily the best to say, well, he's the reason they lost and he took a, he, his play completely fell off the map, He's still not he's not that type of player to rise above the occasion to do more with less. Um, not the best footwork. You know, he Georgia fans have been clamoring to do a little bit more RPO spread related stuff. You know, um, it's no secret they probably run the most stale offense in the conference. So getting a little bit more creative, a little bit more spread could be good for them. I just hope it's not the um, the extended mesh read. But that being said, Newman um, he has a lot to work on in his footwork. And I don't know if, again, it was because of that extended mesh action, making him a little bit less volatile, a little bit less out of rhythm whenever he tried to pull and throw, but he had a lot of issues with footwork and that led to grounding balls into the ground, even on like five to seven, uh, yard targets away. So I'm kind of concerned about him with that, but again, he's going to go into a situation where he's not going to be asked to carry the ball 15 times a game where he's not going to have to shoulder 70% of the offense where the reason they, he has a mediocre game is the reason they win or lose. Well, if he's mediocre and average, well, I think Georgia with that defense can play with just about anybody. It's just a matter of not being a detriment to the team. And I don't think he's that. And I think he's absolutely going to have an easier plate. I don't think they're going to be nearly as vertical. I think they're going to give, um, his targets a little bit closer like Blaylock. He'd be a perfect person to uh, ease Newman into this new offense with a little bit more targets closer to the line of scrimmage, 
ease into that yak game, get him, build his confidence and, you know, and, re- and tell him, look, we don't need you to be Superman. We just need you to make the plays that are there for us and help the run game uh, get you through. Costello, on the other hand, so he was a tougher person to project because, of course, his best season was two years ago and not last season. And, of course, injuries kind of made him a harder, uh, a, a harder bird to evaluate because of that. You know, how, how hurt was he throughout the course of last season? Of course, if he was uh, nursing a hurt shoulder or a bum ankle, obviously I'm not going to expect him to play hurt off uh, extended rest in during 2020. So I was a little bit mm, half and half on 2018 and 19 scouting him, but I'll tell you who Costello reminds me of, Mike. It's Kyle Trask. Um, they're both elongated, kind of cement-footed pocket passers. They aren't the best to drive the ball outside the numbers, but they have enough arm strength to, to make it work. They have enough ball placement ability in contested pass situations to make you a little bit apprehensive when the ball goes, but they make enough throws that, you know, hey, he makes enough throws for us that he's a difference maker. And again, the one red flag is interceptable passes. And one thing that if I was a Mississippi State fan, and I would be jumping up and down, is the fact that Alberts, everyone knows Alberts is probably one of the more aggressive pass patterns you can have in modern football. You know, you're just sending four or five guys deep downfield trying to overload the back half of coverage as well. It's a very Mike Leach, pro, uh, you know, uh, concept to run. Um, they call it six. And believe it or not, when I was charting Stanford, that was their most targeted pass concept. And not only was it their most targeted pass concept, uh, Costello was one of the more prolific passers completing passes on said concept. So um, even though he doesn't necessarily have elite arm strength, he's a very good decision maker. Like if he was entering the in, within conference play last season, he would have been top five in passing success rate accuracy percentage and depth adjusted accuracy percentage while being top 10 in explosive pass rate. So he has a lot of upside. It's just, can he stay healthy? What can he do behind that kind of shoddy Mississippi state line? I mean, both whether because of long developing pass patterns under Joe Moorhead, or if it was just because of poor pass blocking, both Tommy Stevens and Garrett Schrute, AKA Schrader had sack rates that are near the conference floor last season. So I don't know if that's going to change with the new scheme or not, but that's something to definitely keep in mind because interceptable passes were one thing that Costello absolutely has to fix for his last season of college football. Yeah. And my thing on Jamie Newman, I've said it since we saw these Heisman odds come out where my God, people are saying, you know, he's the SEC's favorite to win the Heisman. I've said that's ridiculous, but where I do like him is the fact that Based on what I've seen, he's very able to push the ball down the field. I think that's something that Georgia fans have been clamoring for. And like you said, they want a little bit more, you know, less stagnant uh, offense. They want a running quarterback. And while he may not be a game breaker when you're talking speed, he seems like a very tough physical runner based on what I've seen. And with a totally reworked offensive line, I think that's going to be paramount if Georgia's going to have any success, particularly, you know, third game of the season, they're playing Alabama. There's going to be a lot of pressure on Jamie Newman. And if he can't make anything happen with his legs, I think they're going to have a real issue there. 
and KJ Costello. It's it's kind of like you said, it's, it's kind of weird because he was so good in 2018 last year, issues all, all across the field with injuries and whatnot. But I don't know. I think, I think the main issue for Mississippi State and Costello, I don't even think it's going to be the quarterback play. I think it's going to be do they have enough receivers to fit Mike Leach's system because I just don't know that they have that yet. But I don't know. That's one of the biggest question marks I have from the SEC next year. That is a, I mean, that's a, that's a very fair concern because um, they basically recruited pass catchers to play with Nick Fitzgerald. So wide pass, uh, wide catch radius, you know, Aaron passes galore. We need tall, big body guys, not necessarily speed threats or apt route runners. Just basically go downfield. We'll throw you a jump ball. We'll go get it. That's absolutely a concern to have. You know, Dedrick Thomas is pretty good, but you know, Osiris Mitchell and, um, uh, Gidry, I'm, I do have a lot of questions moving forward for them just because of, like you said, they were asked to play in a very vertical scheme before, but I'm not sure if they can help a passer coming in off the street with a brand new offense like KJ Costello as apt as he is in terms of ball placement and decision making. Now, you also did an article on the sophomore quarterbacks. We, got, we already hit on Bo Nix quite a bit, but you know, with so much star power leaving the SEC at the quarterback position this offseason, they're going to need guys, some of these guys to break out. Ryan Halinski, John Rice Plumley, Matt Corral, Garrett Schrader, Brian Maurer. You broke my heart with your with your research on John Rice Plumley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Can, I can know. you give me give us some information? Which one of these guys do you think is the maybe the number one candidate to break out moving forward? I mean, it, 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 we might be in a situation where the best sophomore to be passer might start the season on the bench, and um, basically. It broke three breakout candidates from our six. Um, I think Mr. Nix, Mr. Schrader, and Mr. Corral have the have the best chances to be a breakout. Now we already talked on Nix and reasons why, but for Matt Corral, low key, uh, very very good explosive uh, passer last season. Of course, he was thrown into the fray a decent amount of times when. Ole Miss kind of was in desperation mode. They had to pass, and so sorry, Mr. Plumley, we can't use you right now. So he was shelved quite a bit. Um, looking at overall success rate, Matt Corral was sixth in the conference last year, and he had the fourth best first down touchdown rate with the third best explosive pass rate. I mean, that's, I mean, if he was my sophomore passer, I'd be pounding my chest absolutely to get him to start with Lane Kiffin as a, a play caller. Are you kidding me? Especially considering the fact that Plumley was down, damn near near the bottom in everything across the board, especially in clean situations um i think he was bottom three from clean situations if i'm not mistaken so that's absolutely what you do not want from a passer moving forward is again if uh you can't do it when everything is perfect when the hell can you and as electric as john rice Plumley is at the end of the day you're gonna have to be able to make some passes if you're gonna play quarterback in the sec man this i mean lynn bowden aside unless you're going to be running quarterback counters and all this other type of stuff nonstop. You don't have the defense to play that type of way. You're going to have to be asked to make some throws. And I think Corral is absolutely better positioned to do so than Schrader, uh, than uh, Plumley. Now, speaking of Schrader, low key, very uh, explosive himself. He was sixth in explosive pass rate. And he was actually one of the best in looking at the so- soon to be sophomores at throwing 10 plus yards downfield. He was the only one of the six soon-to-be sophomores to break the conference's top 10 in both 
success rate and accuracy on throws 10 plus yards downfield. And of course, we already talked about Nick's. He was more of jack of all trades, master of none. But the one area where he did stand out of, uh, above all the other soon to be sophomores was in depth adjusted accuracy percentage. Now, this is not the same as accuracy percentage, which, which is like completion percentage. It's either yes or no. It's completed. Yes. No, it's accurate. Yes, no. What what depth-adjusted accuracy does, it applies more risk-reward the further the ball travels downfield. So passes behind the line of scrimmage are completely not counted. If you're really good at throwing 10, 15, 20-yard passes, well, you're going to come out smelling like a rose than if you were just throwing one, two, three-yard passes because they're not weighted as heavily. With that in mind, he was uh, he had the he had the number one clip in the conference from the student sophomores at a forty eight point three percent clip is the only one to break the top ten in that regard. So while Corral offers consistency and explosiveness, I don't know how much weight to put into it because he was actually he had to be aggressive considering the snaps he came in. I mean, just think of the Iron Bowl. Just there was that one Alberts play against Cover Four where they literally sent those four guys deep three straight times, and finally the fourth time. They got it, and you know we all know how that ended. But that's not atypical football running that type of play that many times in a row until something sticks. And yet that was what he was asked to do more often, not just because of the situations he was put in. So while that's a little bit volatile, and he did, and he did come into the year a little bit more handcuffed. Like their most favorite play the first month of the season was an inside zone with a slot bubble. Boring as hell, right? Well, we saw how diverse that offense went, but. If Lane Kiffin's going to be there and he wants a little bit more of a creative offense, Plumlee might be the guy, but if he's going to have to be, you know, if he's going to have to pass a decent amount, I still think Corral is heads and shoulders the better option that way. And of course, the article goes into this. If we were to look at run and pass figures combined, well, Plumlee has the lowest run plus pass yards per play of the sophomores, even lower, or he had the second lowest, I'm sorry, only better than Ryan Halinski who was absolutely a um, traditional West Coast quarterback, very little threat to run the ball. So even though he brought a lot of electricity, a lot of excitement, down to down, John Reese Plumlee really wasn't that great. All right, so on this podcast, we like to hit on as many SEC teams as we can. So I'll ask you this. You you don't have an article on these guys, so I don't know how much you've researched them, but can you give us your quick thoughts on Felipe Franks at Arkansas, Sean Robinson at Missouri, you know, I'm I'm not a big fan of Felipe Franks personally, but I am a huge believer in Kendall Bryles, so maybe he can get something out of him. And I've, I'll be completely honest here. I know almost nothing about Sean Robinson. I was very disappointed we didn't get to spring because I was hoping to see some something from him. Same here. You know, I really don't like to put a whole lot of uh, tape into high school highlights or uh, highlight films, it, it, you know, because you're just seeing the best of somebody. You're not getting the whole picture. So I really don't know how much about him. But I'll say this about Felipe Franks. You know, he gets a lot of crap. Um, inaccurate passer, takes too many sacks, you know, this, that, and the other. Florida fans want a, li- a little bit more explosiveness from him. He's a little bit more risk adverse than maybe they would have liked. The way he started the season last year in his two and a half game sample. I mean, his numbers are better than what Joe Burrow ended at. I mean, he, before he went out, his numbers were very, very good. His depth-adjusted accuracy percentage was near 80%, which is pretty damn crazy considering uh, two-and-a-half games worth of, of samples, even though, you know, of course, you got that one bogus game against Poop State or whatever. But, you know, <laughs> Miami and Kentucky turned out to be two of, two of the top 
25 defenses in the country. And, you know, before he went out, you know, obviously he was a little, he wasn't on his A game by any means in either game, but analytically it was definitely trending in the right direction. He showed a lot of improvement. And with Dan Mullen as a play caller, I mean, who knows how the year could have ended, but you know, Arkansas, I really don't know how their makeup's going to be moving forward because, you know, with Brett Bielema, they wanted to be smash mouth. They wanted to be multi-tied in. They wanted to be run first. And then you get Chad Morris, and it's just, all right, we want empty protection, and we want spread run or spread run and run and shoot philosophies. And, of course, it just never meshed well. The, the line consistently was one of the more poorest units in the, in the conference. So Felipe Franks going into that situation, even with Sam Pittman being a, a former offensive line coach, I'm a little bit apprehensive to say that Arkansas is going to be hitting the ground running by any means, even as much as I do respect Kendall Breyer's ability to get the most out of, uh, you know, his past stops from signal callers and passers. But, you know, I do like Felipe Franks to at least be the best option they have moving forward, in, uh, barring injury. I, I think his recovery uh, from everything I've seen, from everything I've seen has gone swimmingly and he should be able to at least maybe steal a game or two in the West, but, yeah, I mean, let's be honest. Arkansas, just the supporting cast, with a lot of soon-to-be sophomores themselves at the receiving rank, and as good as, well, as decent as Rashad Boyd is in the backfield, I just don't think it's enough to consistently win enough or steal enough to get to bowl eligibility. But I could be wrong. And, I mean, Felipe Bay Franks is, by all means, he is not a bad quarterback. He is a, a more than decent option and you know, I think he would. He has a case to finish the season as a top five quarterback. Um, but the question is, can he stay healthy? Does he mesh in a new scheme? And you know, how much noise can they make in a pretty loaded SEC West? All right, last thing I got for you. Now I know this this will be complete guesses because we didn't get spring football and we got new coaching staffs at both these schools. But I wanted to get your starting quarterback predictions for Mississippi State. K.J. Costello or Garrett Schrader, who are they going to roll out week one? Week one, I have to say it's Costello at this point in time. You know, you don't hear too many instances of a freshman quarterback getting in a, a fist fight before the bowl game. <laughs> so I'm not sure how much of a, uh, a lingering effect that has moving forward if people are going to rally behind him or if he was just a little snot who was at fault. You know, I don't know. I think, especially with the brand-new staff starting fresh, um, especially Mike Leach is going to be more aware and comfortable with Costello because he played against them for a couple of seasons. So I think absolutely. And again, because of the style of play, not to say that Schrader isn't um, apt to playing in that style of all the students to be sophomores, his drop back pass rate was the highest of all of them. So he didn't really rely on screens or run pass options hardly at all um, con- uh, compared to the, the other youngsters. So that's got to be nice. But again, you got to go with a, five, a fifth-year senior who has played in a similar scheme, and, of course, you have firsthand experience coaching against him. So you, you know his strengths and weaknesses a little bit better than someone you solely know off just a tape. You, you've seen with your own eyes what Castillo could do. All right, same question for Ole Miss. Matt Corral, John Rice Plumlee. If you, and if you say Matt Corral, I'm going to hang up on you. Oh, my gosh. Well, this is going to be a short answer then. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, at this point in time, at this point in time, I just have to go with Corral. Um, he's not as, as exciting. And, I mean, look, this, this spring would have been huge for Plumley and Corral because Plumley would have, obviously, being a two-sport athlete, he would have been able to stay in shape and 
offered that versatility because, you know, playing them all, you're developing different muscles than if you were just playing football. You're working out different parts of the brain. You're, you're working on different levels of awareness, hitting a baseball as opposed to dealing with a pass rush. It's a different type of stimuli you're working with. But at this point in time, I just have to go with Corral because of his consistency. And, you know, he was more explosive at the end of the day. His combined run pass explosive play rate was near 15%. And Plumley's was under 12%. And, of course, he averaged more yards per play in the process as well. All right. He's Clark Brooks, a.k.a. SEC Stat Cat. Follow him at SEC underscore Stat Cat. Check the Facebook page. Same thing, SEC underscore Stat Cat and SECStatCat.com. You have to check out this website if you're an SEC fan, and you got to be if you're listening to this show. So once again, Clark, I, I truly do appreciate you hopping on here, giving us so much time and so much knowledge. It, it means a lot. Mike, it was an absolute pleasure. All right, Shane, so just a ton of information <laughs> there from Clark Brooks, the SEC Stat Cat, and a lot to uh, throw at us here, Kellen Bond. Kyle Trask, you know, he's kind of leaning towards us there with Kyle Trask being the SEC's better quarterback heading into the season. Mac Jones, better than Bo Nix. That was kind of surprised to me, but I think perhaps the biggest, you know, comment he had here, not very high on Jamie Newman. Georgia fans, they're throwing their phones right now. Florida fans are <laughs> happy as could be. So uh, what's your main takeaway from uh, what Clark Brooks had to say there? Well, you know, I was – I wasn't willing to crown Newman when he just came in. You know, I, I just think the hot train was getting a little out of hand. And, you know, you've had some you've had some really good quarterbacks come through Georgia. And you may have been, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for, Mike? Like when you had something good for so long, you don't realize what you had until it's gone kind of deal. Yeah, a little spoiled with Jake Fromm, huh? Yeah, may, yeah maybe spoiled. Maybe they just, you know, Jake, Jake didn't. Maybe he, maybe he didn't wow you like you you would hope you know or you were expecting or you know it's just mm-hmm. Eason you know there was there was games he had there was there was glimmers uh, of fields you thought maybe he'd be the future it's just I don't know maybe the bar was set really high for Fromm and and uh, now you got Newman a guy that's unproven in the SEC coming in and you know you want to you want to say everything's going to be okay but you you can't man your offensive line's gone. You know, your your weapons are question marks. We, You know, they're still young. The running game, it'll be there. It'll be solid. But there's just there's just so many questions. New play calling. There's just, you know, I don't know. I'm not willing to crown Newman yet, but I think he's the type of quarterback that Georgia needs. So if he does come together, if, you know, if, if all of the stars align, this could be a good run for Georgia, and Newman may be the missing factor that they haven't had in a long time. Yeah, I think when we look back at Jake Fromm's career, we might even get like a ESPN 30 for 30 because <laughs> what a strange couple of years it was there for Georgia. Remember, you know, it wasn't that long ago, Jacob Eason. Remember just watching him in the spring game. It was like, my God, he's how many Heismans is this kid going to win? Mm-hmm. This is the Kirby Smart era. This is going to be our Matthew Stafford once again. Everyone was mm-hmm. loving this kid. And then second year, Jake Fromm goes in when when Easton goes down. And, you know, he was, I don't want to say lights out, but he was, you know, a lot better than I think most anticipated. And I think the problem with Jake Fromm was he got better his sophomore season, but he just never got any better than that. 
You know, and I yeah. t- he took a little bit of a step back his junior year, and then we all know the Justin Fields saga that was added to it, and then he goes to Ohio State and is kicking ass. So the sto- it's mm-hmm. just it's just a weird weird story. But you know, he could be, you know, he's not like a pl- he's very different than Josh Dobbs, but I think he could be remembered similar to him. Like I I remember, and I was among it. I didn't think Josh Dobbs was as good as as he was. But hell, I found out how damn quick <laughs> how good he was when he was gone. So I think that might be something that happens to Georgia now again. See, I, I'm I'm a little different, Mike, because uh, I'm with you on the Dobbs. Dobbs was a you know he was a he was a human highlight. You know there was games that he really frustrated you. There was games that he won, and I don't think Fromm's that quarterback that you think 20 years from now, you know, and you're sitting around with your buddies talking about Georgia football. I don't think Fromm's a guy you're going to talk about, man. I, I I think he's a guy we're talking about now because, you know, it's fresh. He's just drafted, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I think 20 years from now, we're still talk, talking about Stafford or DJ or, you know, maybe, maybe even Fields. Now that he's going to Ohio State and doing great things, you may be talking about him more than you're talking about Fromm. So, uh, but – if if Newman comes in and helps this team win a national championship, he could be that guy. He could be somebody that, you know, earns, even though he's one season in, can take the reins as the Georgia quarterback in the 2019s, you know, the 20 teens or whatever you call this, you know. Mm-hmm. I just, I think Fromm's going to be forgotten, man. Shane, do you know the only quarterback in SEC history to lead his team to a division title his first three years? <laughs> from Jake from baby I mean three and0 against Florida three and0 yeah. against Tennessee three and0 win an SEC East I think we're just taking for granted how good he was but again I say all that and I still think George is gonna win 11 games minimum I think they're only gonna lose one game next year so it's not like I'm saying they're gonna go in the tank without him but I don't know I just think that um uh, so you, so you think 20 years from now we're talking about how great Fromm was. Now, how great Kirby is, you know, uh, what he turned around. Just uh, the quarterback, Jake Fromm, is the reason that we won the East three years in a row. Well, maybe not the reason, but I don't know. I just – if you don't got that quarterback, you're, you're missing him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that was a position where Georgia never really had to worry as long as Jake Fromm was in that lineup. And it's kind of like you said, I think they got a little bit spoiled – where you just you knew what you were getting from him. You're never going to mm-hmm. get a five or six touchdown game, but outside of that one South Carolina game where he just he <laughs> self destructed last year, he was never yeah. he was never going to cost you the game either. You know, that's true. That's true. All right, so that's all we got for this week on the shows. But uh, before we jump off here, I think we got us some reviews. Yeah. All right, I got some reviews. Uh-oh. <laughs> First one comes from Big Orange Vols. That sounds familiar. Hey, buddy, five star. I love this show. Mike is an encyclopedia of football knowledge. Jonathan is great, too, but I sure do miss Cousin Shane. Some say he's the best-looking guy in the family. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Keep up the good work, fellas. This beer's for y'all. Well, Big Orange Vols, I don't know who you are, but I appreciate you, you good-looking fella. <laughs> I got a new phone. Uh, this one, Memphis Balls. 
five-star, the best SEC podcast. Mike and Cousin Shane are the best part of my commute to work. Mike gives an honest, detailed, and fair take on all the SEC teams. Cousin Shane, on the other hand, he does his best to do the same, but can't help but show his Tennessee bias, which is hilarious. This is by far my best and favorite SEC podcast out there, and any SEC football fan needs to listen to it. Well, Memphis Balls, I appreciate you. Yeah, that's a good one. We appreciate it. Last one. This one comes from Garrett Westbrook. First time listening. Five star. First time listening to this podcast. Thoroughly enjoyed it, even though it's uh, even though it has a Falls and a Gator fan on it. Good insights and go dogs. Oh, well, shout know, out to it, Cousin Joe there. Yeah. <laughs> Cousin Joe, the big Gator fan. All right. Well, Garrett Westbrook, I appreciate you. Yeah, thanks. We actually got one more. This one comes from Reddit. Not a bad driver. I love that name. Just wanted to say thank you guys for keeping it up and keeping things interesting through such an awkward offseason. I really enjoyed the show and appreciate all the hard work. So, not a bad driver. We appreciate you. Appreciate you, buddy. Well, I appreciate all the guys and girls out there, man. It's good to be back. Uh, hopefully, we can get some serious. I mean, we've got content, man. I'm telling you. You got, you always find something. You always drudge something up, Mike. And I appreciate you, man. I appreciate that effort you put in. Absolutely. We're doing it for you guys out there. And uh, if you would be so kind to give us a five-star rating and review, that helps grow the show, gets it out there. And that's kind of the whole mission of uh, why we need people to leave reviews. So that really does help us out. And we'll send you a free beer koozie, that SEC mm-hmm. football podcast, beer koozie, free of charge. If you Sanitized. do that for us, absolutely no Coronas from us. But uh, that's going to do it. We got three shows this week. I thought there were three outstanding shows. We got some good guests on the show. And uh, I'm excited to see what's going to come next week. Uh, hopefully, we'll have to figure something to talk about. But we'll, we'll get we'll get there. Absolutely, man. Well, Mike, it's my anniversary. I better get off here and uh, apologize. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. All right, Shane, thanks for jumping on. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next one. All right, see you guys. Go Vols.